Oh, yes, here we go again. Oh, it just feels right. A little AP US history in the evening. It's weird. Uh, it's kind of funny, actually, now that we get into April. Um, usually, it's around this time of the year that Mr. Hall and myself, we'd be getting together, uh, offering, you know, evening review classes as we get ready for your um, AP test. But instead, I'm down in the basement. <laughs> My wife is upstairs watching TV. So to the basement, I go and uh, got a little studio set up here. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, Great Depression. Um, so all you got to do is just open up your your Google Slides presentation You'll see the Great Depression, the Great Depression, so sad, uh, all set up there and ready for you to go. This one, I'm just going to warn you, might be a little bit of a long one. Uh, at the end of it, you are going to have a DBQ that you're going to have to write. Uh, I'm going to go through the change uh, to the rubric that we got at the end of last week, uh, Friday evening, we actually got it. And uh, yeah, all right, so here we go. All right, so if you have, if you do not have your review book, uh, this is chapter 33 in the textbook where you can find a lot of information. If you do have your review book, it's chapter 23 in the review book, all right? So we're going to go back and forth uh, going over some, some you know, from the book. And you all know. Well, most of you know. Because uh, I saw from the, the presentation that I had left for you on Friday about the changes to the AP test. I can tell a lot of you are very concerned about this. 16 people listened to it out of uh, 54. So... <laughs> We are, we are cooking with fire. All right, here we go. Great Depression. Are you guys ready? All right, so we're going to want to focus here on what the causes and the effects of the Great Depression were. Pretty, pretty standard social studies uh, concepts right there. All right, so, you know, as long as you're... I don't know if you heard that. That's, that's my, my wife just laughing, uh, cackling, maybe some might say. Um, <laughs> so... Just hit the present button, uh, make sure you open it in slides, and, and here we go. So you have this picture of this guy, right, in front of a car, and he says, work is what I want, not charity. Who will help me get a job? For seven years, I'm in Detroit, I've got no money. I since away my furniture, I have the best references, and then there, here's my, my phone number. So this guy, right, is somebody who we would say represents a true American, okay? And why is that? Because he's not looking for a handout, right? He's looking for a job. He's looking for a way uh, to make money for himself, okay? And um, so as we're going to go through some of this here, uh, some of the information, keep that in mind. A lot of people were not looking to the government to just hand them money. Uh, a lot of people wanted their, you know, the, basically things to be restored so they can go back to work to things being the way that they were. Okay, so Great Depression. How the heck does this happen? The last time, um, last notes, we were talking about the 1920s, uh, known as the Roaring Twenties, right? Everything is good. Everything is, is, is really relatively, things are going well, okay? Were there some problems? Of course, but for the most part, things were looking good. So causes of the Great Depression. All right, what I tried to do with this is uh, I added a couple of videos in here, all from history.com and the History Channel, um, that might be able to help you. You know, if it, if, you, if it helps you to watch a video instead of just listening to me or instead of just reading, um, that's there for you, okay? So, causes of the depression. Number one, overproduction, underconsumption. Overproduction, underconsumption. What does that mean? Okay, well, it's very simple. You produce too much stuff, and people are not buying it, okay? What happens in the 1920s is we go to really what our society is today, and that is a consumer-based society. What does that mean? Consumer-based society, very simply, it just means that we go and buy things, right? We make money, we earn wages, and then we spend those wages purchasing things, consuming, all right? Now, the problem was that you had all these companies that were coming about and they were producing new materials, new appliances and things like that. Well, when the depression hits, okay, people stop buying, right? We, we see, you know, similar things happening right now. 
Uh, people are a little bit concerned about what's going to you know, be around the corner, so to speak, and so they stop purchasing things. Another cause is going to be drought, something called the Dust Bowl, okay? So we've got these businesses, they're making stuff because people couldn't get enough of it. Then all of a sudden, just like that, it's over, all right? And nobody's buying goods like they used to. Then it's like almost a perfect storm, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, we're going to have drought, okay? We're going to have in the Midwest um, just one of the worst droughts that the United States had ever seen. And then, of course, we have the stock market crash. Okay, so let's look at some of these things in a little bit more detail. Overproduction and underconsumption. All right, so if you look at page 271, okay, right here you have your four major um, causes of the of the Great Depression outlined for you, all right? Agricultural prices, buying on installment plans, uh, distribution, uh, I'm sorry, the gap in distribution of wealth, and then, of course, the stock market crash. So what are we talking about here with overproduction and underconsumption? Well, let's talk first about farmers, right? They had new technology, helped them to grow things quickly, right? Uh, the problem is that they use the land too quickly, and this used up the nutrients in the soil. What that's going to do is it's going to cause the loss of that topsoil is going to turn to dust, okay? And it's going to bring about a little bit of a problem. You can read a little bit more on this on page 271 where you have number one, the agricultural prices. If we were in class, all right, we'd all have our books and I'd be like, all right, who would like to read uh, number one? Okay, uh -huh. and then there you go, all right? And we would we'd go about it that way. So what I would suggest is that you read this, okay? The main part for number one, it says... That the end of the war, the end of World War I, brought a correction in prices that proved devastating to farmers who had invested in land and equipment to boost production. So, the issue is this. People were making a lot of money, right, off of uh, farming and, and, and goods having to do with agriculture. And they thought it was going to remain. They thought that the demand was going to remain high. But when World War I is over, towards the end of World War I, we're going to have the Spanish influenza Okay, it's going to cause a major loss of life. And, uh, and, and, and so food, the, the uh, need for food is actually going to drop off. And this is going to cause lots of uh, farmers to lose a lot of money. Okay, the third bullet here says companies created too many new appliances that did not sell, as I kind of said before. And some of these companies went out of business. Now, the thing about that is, all right, so your company goes out of business. Now what? You need a new job. All right. So where do most people go? They'll go and they get a job, you know, working in today, we, you know, working at a Walmart or something, just something to get by in the interim. The problem is all at once, everywhere, those jobs are not going to be available, causing a, a tremendous amount of unemployment. Okay, effects on the farmers. People buy less food, farmers lose money. Okay, let's go to the Dust Bowl. We're going to jump ahead. Jump, this kind of jumps ahead a little bit in time. Okay, because, you know, the stock market crashes in October of 1929, but it's okay. Just think about it more thematically, okay? Right now, we're just talking about the farmers. Okay, if you look on page 273, okay, and uh, along with this picture that you have here, you can see it looks kind of like, like an egg, right? Like a, like a sunny side egg over the um, Midwestern United States with a higher concentration there being in northern Texas, uh, Western Oklahoma, and then, you know, a little bit of Kansas, New Mexico, and Colorado. However, all that area is going to be affected. So what does it say in the book? Let's look at page 273, okay, where you see the uh, bolded area, Dust Bowl. It says, a natural disaster heightened economic suffering during the Dust Bowl. An extended drought aggravated erosion problems brought on by poor soil conservation practices in the states of Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, and Texas. Enormous dust storms ravaged the region during the 1930s. By the end of the decade, nearly 60% of the farms affected by the Dust Bowl had been devastated. 60% of the farms, okay, were devastated. Think about that. You know, if I had my, if I were you, I'd underline that, okay? We talk about writing essays and that you know, your success is in the specifics. That's a good little stat right there. It says most of the affected families abandoned their farms. Okay, now here's some really good information coming up. Ready? 
It says many immigrated to California, hoping to rebuild their lives by finding work in that state's rich agricultural industry. Californians look down upon these uh, countrified Okies, right? Why were they called Okies? Because they came from Oklahoma, who often ended up laboring in the fields from dawn to dusk as migrant agricultural workers. Okay, now, ready? You want to be successful? You want to, you know, you're going to have to write a DBQ on this topic. You want to hit this one out of the park, as they say, in Boston? Well, the novelist John Steinbeck memorably, memorably described the travails of these people in The Grapes of Wrath, written in 1939. Okay, it's a story about this guy named Tom Joad uh, and, and his family, migrant farmers, just as they're talking about here, uh, moving across the country, okay, from the Midwest all the way out west looking for jobs, looking for jobs. This is a desperation, right? What is the number one reason why people are going to move? Looking for work, okay? And unfortunately for them, in a lot of cases, uh, it does not work out all that well, okay? So that is our Dust Bowl. If you want even more information on the Dust Bowl, have a little um, link right there to a nice little video on it. Okay, so that basically does it as far as talking about the farmers. Okay, let's talk about the stock market crash. Okay, it says the most significant cause of the Great Depression was a series of plunges in the stock market. Plunges were blamed on people buying shares of stock, what we call on margin. Okay, so it says page 272. Let's backtrack a little bit. Okay, and let's go to page 271. If we look at page 271, our cause number two says buying on the installment plan. So buying on margin, buying in installments, it's very much like today when people use a credit card. Okay, um, here, for example, I have to buy a new uh, refrigerator for my house. Uh, it's a true story. I really do. Um, so, you know, let's say I need a new refrigerator. Uh, it's going to cost about $1,000. Right now, I really don't want to, you know, spend $1,000. Maybe I don't have $1,000. So instead, I'll use my Best Buy credit card, right? And they tell me, hey, um, we're going to give you 12 months, no interest, right? So they give me 12 months to pay that off. That is paying it off in installments, okay? So that is exactly what we're talking about. So let's read here, buying on the installment plan. It says, consumer buying spree of the 1920s was in large part made possible by the availability of easy credit, okay? So, in case you don't know the way that credit works, all right, you don't have the money for something, you basically take out a loan, okay, and then you pay that back over a period of time. That's how a credit card works. That's how when you buy a car, you take out an auto loan. That's how these things work. Those are installments, okay? It says most Americans could not afford to buy their automobiles, refrigerators, radios, and other products with a lump sum cash payment. Of course. Imagine, hey, I'm going to go buy a car. It's $25,000. Oh, sure. Here, do you accept cash? Uh, you know, most people don't have that kind of money. Continuing on, it says, instead, they purchase these goods in installments, making monthly payments. By 1928 and 1929, many people were tied up paying for products they already possessed. Okay. So here's where this goes bad, right? If I go and I buy my new refrigerator, okay, and I pay it off over a year, all right, that's fine. A refrigerator should last me a lot longer than a year. But what if I buy my refrigerator and I pay it off over 10 years? Then six years into paying that off, my refrigerator then breaks and I have to buy a new one. Well, now I'm going to be paying for that refrigerator still and then another one. And what's eventually going to happen? I'm going to be in a mountain of debt, right? Just having to pay too much stuff where I'm not even benefiting from the first one that I'm paying for anymore. I hope, I hope you guys understand this because it is really a key, okay? It, again, paying things off over time, it's necessary. However, when you take too much time, or if you're buying something that you truly can't afford, that's when it becomes a problem. My brother did this uh, many, many, many years ago. Uh, he got a job. He was working for Coca-Cola. He, he got a job as a delivery guy. And uh, he went out and he needed to buy a new car. So he went and bought a BMW. And my father and I were like, 
What are you? What are you crazy? Like what? A BMW? You you're working for Coke? You're a delivery guy? Like who do you think you are? And he's like, oh, listen, it's okay. I got this loan. It was called a balloon payment. He was supposed to pay it off over three years. He was paying three hundred or so dollars a month for thirty five months, and then the thirty sixth payment, the last payment, was something like twenty seven thousand dollars. So I was like, how the heck? Where, where are you going to come with twenty seven thousand dollars? He's like, I'll worry about that when I get there. And see, this is the problem. Because now, what do you do when you're at that point? You now have this huge amount of money you have to pay. And now you're going to have to return the cards. It's, it's of no, no use to you. Okay? So these are the problems that these people were having. Now, that's installment buying. Okay? That's getting in trouble with credit. What does that have to do with the stock market? Okay. Back then... You used to be able to buy stock on credit. This is where this becomes a real serious problem. When you purchase stock in a company, you are giving money, that money, to that company. Okay? If I want to purchase stock in Disney, right? Right before Disney Plus comes out, a few, you know, about, what, about a year or so ago, I say, oh man, I think Disney Plus is going to be amazing. And I want to make sure that, you know, I invest in it. I'm now giving money, whether it's, you know, a couple of hundred dollars or a couple of thousand dollars, I'm giving my money to Disney for them to invest it, okay? If I'm buying that on credit, am I really giving them money? I'm giving them this idea of money, but not true money. So what happens with the stock market is, to put it simple, people were investing in companies with money that they did not have. Then when those companies needed that money, the money was not there. And what happens to those companies? They go out of business. When the companies that you invest in go out of, goes out of business, what happens to your investment? It is also gone. And so what we have is basically like a domino effect, okay, where everybody becomes affected by it. And here, if you're still on the slide for the stock market crash, okay, here's a little dollar, right? Oh, oh I don't know what happened there. You're supposed to walk up the thing. Anyway, moving on. Buying on margin. We just kind of talked about this, okay? Now, the second bullet. This is when this becomes very, very, very dangerous, okay? When people don't have the money, right? Bills are coming in. Bills are coming in. Oh, my God, I got to pay my bills, right? I have my Best Buy bill. I have my car uh, loan. I have my mortgage or my rent. All these bills, all these bills, 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 bills. I don't have the money. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? People started doing something called panic selling, okay? So it's like, oh, I have my PlayStation 4. Maybe on let go, I can get $100 for it, right? Oh, I have a guitar. Hey, maybe on let go, somebody will give me $250 for it, even though it's worth $700, all right? And so this is panic selling. And people then go and sell all the possessions they have to cover this month's bills. Well, what happens next month? And what happens the month after that? And, you know, you're all discerning, smart, uh, youngins. I'm sure you can understand here, we were going in a real bad place, okay? One of the things that people would sell, their cars, all right? Uh, and, and again, now you're losing the possession that you're still going to be paying for, okay? And what's, what's that going to lead to? Nothing but financial disaster. Okay. Black Tuesday, October 29th, 1929, what happened? Stock prices fell by $14 billion, okay? $14 billion in 1929 money, all right? So we are talking about a ton of money. Um, if you'd like to read more about this, on page 272, you have the stock market crash, the Great Depression. I'm not going to read it to you. Uh, I figure you can read that on your own. Obviously, you have the book right there. There are just some things before I wanted to point out to you. And I'll do that again in a little bit. Okay, bank failures. Here's the thing, right? People see banks are starting to have problems. What are you going to do? I am going to go to the bank and take out my money. Okay? Well, what happens? Some, in some cases, the banks went out of business. People went to go get their money. And the bank's not there. What happens now? Pandemonium, right? Now is when you start to have people 
really just losing their mind. I mean, if I went to go get my money out of the bank and the, nobody was there, I don't know, I don't know what I would do. Uh, it would be an ugly situation, I would say. Uh, here's another video on that, on the stock market crash, okay? In case you want to have a little visual that's going to go along with it, you can check that out, okay? So, what are some of the effects now of the Great Depression? What are some of the effects? Well, if you look at page number 273, okay, um, we've got there, it talks about the Hoovervilles, okay, why they named that, they named that after the president, President Hoover, uh, who really was very cold and callous uh, to the needs of the people. Um, he just really thought people had kind of gotten themselves into the trouble that they were in, so therefore they should get themselves out of it, uh, that this wasn't really a governmental problem, okay? Well, it is. Because if you have, you know, our, on average, we run at about 4 or 5% of the population being unemployed. Here, 1932, right, as if hopefully you're, on the, you're following along in the, in the slides. 1932, 25% of the population was out of work, okay? Now, what does this lead to? Well, college attendance is going to go down, right? You, people have to work. They can't afford to go to school. The birth rate's going to go down. You know, if, if everything is looking bad, you're going to want to uh, bring another, bring a child into the world, right? Another mouth to feed, things like that. Marriage rates, of course, that goes down as well. Okay, homelessness. Um, people in the cities, as I said, they started to set up these little shanty towns uh, and they called them Hoovervilles. Okay, obviously a jab at the president, uh, President Hoover. Effects on culture. This is an interesting thing. You know, today, right, all on everything, oh, you know, stay home, stay home. Uh, what is the thing I saw? It was on MTV, to, to, uh, Together Alone or Alone Together, something like that, I don't know. But basically, watch TV, right? Why? Why is it that, and I think I brought this up in the last podcast too, why is that The Tiger King, such an insane show, has blown up so much? Because it's a distraction, Okay. Movies, 90 million people a week went to go see movies. What kind of movies? Well, these are fantasy movies, right? These are escapes from reality, things that people can go to so that they can forget about their problems for a little bit. Uh, movies such as Wizard of Oz, okay, King Kong. Lots of people start listening in on the radio. Radio is free, okay? And then, of course, you're going to have, you know, books, um, such as the one I mentioned before, Grapes of Wrath, written by John Steinbeck. Okay, so let's talk about our presidents here. Herbert Hoover, laissez-faire, hands off. And he certainly was laissez-faire. Again, he felt that the economic problems that were in existence, people created, right? And, you know, if you think about it logically, people went, wanted to buy new appliances they didn't have money for. People wanted to try and buy stocks they didn't have money for. Their eyes got a little too big. And so he says, hey, look, they did it, not me. This is their problem. They should get themselves out of it. Then, and, and you know, you, while it's cold, it's understandable. And then something happens. Oh, boy, oh, boy, does something happen. If you look at page 274 at the bottom, okay, we have the story of the bonus army, all right? Now, you're going to be writing an essay, a DBQ essay, on Franklin Roosevelt and how he uh, worked with the Great Depression. One of your points is contextualization, okay? If I were to write this essay, I am absolutely, 100% going to start off with the bonus army. Why? Let's, let's read about it. Okay, you go to page 274, all the way at the bottom of the page, it says... Uh, where, where we have this uh, little bit about the Bonus Army, okay? It says, The fate of the Bonus Army confirmed the uh, popular impression of President Hoover as an out-of-touch an out of touch, and unfeeling leader. Why? What happens? In the summer of 1932, thousands of unemployed veterans of World War I converged on Washington to lobby for an early payment of bonuses that were legally due to them in 1945. Okay, so you have these soldiers from, 19, from World War I, they were supposed to get paid basically, you know, money for later on in life. But 1945, it was so, you know, this, that's 13 years away. They needed the money now. They needed the money now, right? Think about it. They had served the country in the war. They did their part. 
all they're asking for now is that the government that they had helped to fight for now protects them, okay? Hoover and Congress rejected the demands, as we continue to read, they rejected the demands of the veterans. Most then went home. However, several thousand of those veterans, many of them accompanied by their wives and children, set up an impromptu encampment along the Anacostia River. After clashes with police that left two veterans dead, Hoover ordered Army Chief of Staff Douglas MacArthur to use federal troops to clear protesters from downtown Washington. The zealous MacArthur exceeded his instructions and stormed the veterans' encampment with fixed bayonets. Okay, so what does that mean? Here we have an encampment of poor, right? Poor World War I veterans, and they are being attacked by American soldiers with rifles and the bayonets, the sword part of the gun, all, all fixed, uh, uh, un unreal, right? And came with fixed bayonets and tear gas. Dozens of people, people were injured, and the shelters that the veterans had built were burned to the ground. The brutal dispersal of the bonus army haunted President Hoover as the country prepared for a presidential election. Okay, how, how disgusting, right? Here you have, again, veterans, people. I mean, all you ever see is, hey, you know, support the veterans, 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 veterans. And yet look at how they were being treated, okay? So when I'm going to write my essay, and this is going to make a little more sense in a few minutes when we get to that, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I'm going to start with this story, okay? Because this really is the transition that's going to lead to Franklin Roosevelt becoming president, okay? Uh, if you look in the slides, all right, it, as it says, the last one there, the bonus would eventually be paid in 1936. So they didn't have to wait till 1945, but it did take until 1936 for them to get the money that was due to them. Okay, 1932, we have an election. Look at that map, huh? That's a whole lot of blue. So Franklin Roosevelt is in the blue, okay? Hoover is red, and you can see that the people of the United States wanted to change, Okay. Uh, they were unhappy with the leadership, if you want to call it that, <laughs> from Hoover, and they wanted to move on to somebody different, and that was going to be Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, there's a little video on that if you'd like uh, a little more enrichment for you, okay? So who is Franklin Delano Roosevelt? All right, he is a governor of New York, all right? Here's the thing about him. Um, he is related to, so Teddy Roosevelt... Okay, his fifth cousin is Eleanor Roosevelt, who is Franklin Roosevelt's wife. Okay, Franklin Roosevelt would say many times while he's president that he often like basically aspired to be better than Teddy Roosevelt was. Teddy Roosevelt is really, you know, again, looked at as one of the better presidents that the United States ever had, right? After remember, he comes in. The government was very laissez-faire, okay? Remember, the way that the previous presidents, the ones before him, were dealing with big business and uh, labor issues, always taking the side of big business. And then Teddy Roosevelt comes in, and he changes that. Well, Franklin Roosevelt comes in when the government was not helping people out, again, very similar, and he changes that, okay? Another thing that you can talk about when trying to get your contextualization point. Okay, major promises he made. Big one. And this is how he's going to get elected. It's really, it's hysterical. So this is a time of prohibition, right? People were not allowed to uh, drink alcohol. We're not allowed to buy alcohol. And so he says that a vote for FDR is a vote for a drink. He promises. He says, if you, if you elect me, the very first thing I'm going to do, the very First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to repeal prohibition. Now, it's kind of funny, right? Oh, here we go. Here's this president. He comes in and he's all about the booze. All right. This is actually an extremely brilliant move on his part. Number one, as soon as he becomes elected as president, he meets with Congress while he is the president-elect, right? So not the president yet, but he's in that interim period where he's been elected as president <clears throat> and then he's going to take over a couple months later once he is inaugurated. He meets with Congress to make sure that they are going to approve of his repealing of prohibition. And that would be the 21st Amendment. 
Why is this way more uh, about a lot more than just alcohol? Okay, because here is a guy who says, I promise I'm going to do this. I promise I'm going to do this. And so often, right, in politics, when you have somebody who promises to do something, they end up not doing it. Well, the fact that he does do it is magnanimous. In other words, this is huge, major, 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 major. Okay, what happens? 10 days after he is inaugurated, bam, it is repealed. And what does that do? It gives a little bit of, uh, like, it renews faith, restores faith in the presidency, okay? Allows people to say, hey, you know what? Wow, maybe, maybe this guy is going to be telling us the truth. So it was a very, very important thing. It's not just about alcohol. It's about, you know, again, reinstalling faith in the president. Roosevelt gains trust of the people, as it says, with the 21st Amendment. How about that? Okay, so Roosevelt, he used fireside chats. He reaches out to the people. Again, another example of him not at all being laissez-faire, okay? Uh, he's going to get people to trust him. This is something that was very, very, very different. Um, and it, it is kind of similar to what's happening now, right? Uh, you know, New York State has been really one of the hardest, really, let's everybody be honest, the hardest hit place uh, in the country and really one of the hardest hit places in the world by this virus that's taking place, right? So our governor has been on TV just about every single day, right? The president has been on TV, I would say maybe five out of seven days a week. This is not normal, okay? You don't, you don't hear from the president this much. You don't hear from the governor this much, but these are, these are tough times, Back then, this is a brand new concept. And Franklin Roosevelt, he, you know, he doesn't want the president to just be an idea of somebody who's out there. He wanted the people to know, no, I'm a real person and I'm here to help you. And so he did these fireside chats where you can listen in for free all right, on, on your radio. And he would give updates on what the government is doing. Okay, uh, how they're how they've been successful, what problems they've come into uh, and things like that. And it was really actually quite honest the way that he was portraying um, the, the work of the government and what they were doing as far as the Great Depression was. Okay, Roosevelt's going to come up with something called the New Deal, the New Deal. All right. What is the New Deal? The New Deal is basically his legislation um, where he is going to put Americans back to work again. He's going to get the country going again. We hear that a lot right now, right? We've got to open up the country. For him, it was getting people out to work, okay? Getting people off the bread lines, all right? In other words, you know, people who are starving for food uh, and, and getting things back to the way that they were in the early 1920s when, for the most part, uh, the country was in a lot better shape. So the New Deal, that is his plan, okay? Now... The three R's. That second bullet there for the New Deal, super, super, super important. Three R's. Relief, recovery, reform. Okay, I'll say it again. Relief, recovery, reform. Extremely, extremely important. Um, think about it like this. Think about an injury, okay? For some of you, you're athletes. You may have been injured in the past. Even if you haven't, just think about it like this. This is just common sense. Uh, in 2003, I was playing basketball. Me, my brother, uh, we were playing with this guy, Doug. He was an awesome basketball player. Uh, we were playing a pickup game of basketball over in Whispering Pines. And I was so happy. I was so, like, amped up, man. You know, we, we had played uh, four games, had won all of them. And now we were playing, this is like, you know, fifth game in a row. We just get started, had the tip off. <laughs> my brother throws a pass to me. I'm feeling like I'm invincible, right? Uh, I'm you know, 23 years old, just loving life. My brother throws me a, a, a pass, right? It sails a little bit. I go, I catch it while I'm in the air, right? Picture this, people, picture this. This is one of my moments of glory for a split second. While, my, while I'm, I'm, I'm in the air, full up, right? I catch the ball. I see Doug trailing right under, the, right under the rim. I throw him the ball while all in the air. Catch it, throw it. I come down. And my knee, which is supposed to bend one way, goes the other way. And I tore my ACL and I tore my meniscus and it was terrible. Now, think about that injury, right? I was in a tremendous amount of pain, okay? 
Uh, and more so than even the pain was just seeing my leg bent the wrong way. Um, it was a problem. So what happened that right, right then I went to the hospital. Uh, they gave me some, you know, medication for pain. They gave me an air cast and things like that. That's relief, right? Right at that moment, I'm in pain. Okay, cool. So they relieve that pain. Then you have the recovery. What's that? Well, you go, you get your surgery, okay? And you're going to, you know, recover. You, you have to, they got to fix it. Then you have to go for physical therapy and it's going to take a little bit of time. So the relief is immediate. Recovery is soon thereafter. And then we have reform, okay? So the basketball court where I was playing on, I'm not even, not even exaggerating. Uh, the, it was very uneven, the surface, right? So if we were to do this properly, what would we have done? We would have repaved the surface, made sure that it was uh, even so that in the future, somebody else doesn't get the same injury that I had, uh, had, had had, right? So that is relief, recovery, reform. So that's on a personal note, right? Think about it, make it simple. What about for the economy? Relief for the people. People who were destitute, people who couldn't afford to pay for their electric bill, right? For their heating. Uh, people who couldn't afford to have food on the table for their families, for their little kids. They needed relief. How does that come? That came from money that was given to them. We're seeing that now, right? Government passed a $2.2 trillion, um, basically, uh, you know, relief stimulus package, I guess they're calling it. Okay, what does that do? It sends money to people now. You got to pay your bills now, right? The bills are here, right? So if you're not working, what are you going to do? Well, the government says here, we're going to at least, you know, for anywhere from I think 1,200 to 2,900, something like that, uh, people are getting to, to help them be able to pay for their bills. That's relief immediately. Recovery, okay. So yeah, you can give people money and that's going to help with their bills. But what about next month? Right? What about the month after that? That's where recovery comes in. And he's going to have what we're going to call his alphabet programs. And we're going to go over that in a minute. And then reform. Okay, How do we make sure that things like the stock market crash never, ever, ever happen again? So third bullet, right? pass laws to allow greater involvement for the government in the economy. The New Deal is going to give the government power it never had previous. And it's going to empower the government for years to come, okay? Major, major changes here and, and a growth of the um, central government, a growth of the federal government. Reduction in laissez-faire, lower taxes, increase in government spending. Um, Roosevelt's first action, his very, very first thing, is going to be what's called the Emergency Banking Act of 1933. So in your book, okay, if you look at the, uh, on page 276, the 100 days, that page and a half is going to be extremely important for you. I'm not going to read it to you. Okay, it kind of goes over some of the things we've talked about. We're going to talk about a little bit more. But I want you to read over this. This is going to help you a lot in writing your GBQ essay. Okay, um, the first thing he's going to do, Emergency Bank Act 1933, actually closes down the banks closes the banks. And so now it's not one of those things where, oh, hey, here, here's Mr. Braun. He's going to the bank to take out some money today. Uh-oh, his bank is closed, and now he's losing his mind. No, it's not that. Instead, what they did was they closed the banks, and they said the government is doing this. Don't panic. Don't go crazy, Mr. Braun. <laughs> um, everything is going to be okay. We're just taking a pause here while we try and figure out what the best way to go about fixing this is going to be. Okay, here are some examples of his alphabet programs, okay? FDIC, for any of you who have opened up a bank account, you'll see uh, it, it will always say FDIC, FDIC member, FDIC. What is that? That is insurance on your money, okay? So if you have, you know, up to uh, $250,000 in a bank, that money is insured by the bank and by the federal government. That's why it's called the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Okay, so if something were to happen, you're not going to just, your money is not just going to evaporate. Okay, it's, it's there. The CCC, um, there is in just outside of Denver, Colorado, uh, an amphitheater called Red Rocks Theater. Okay, um, 
lots and lots and lots of uh, bands, musicians have played there. It's kind of like looked upon as like, wow, you know, that band got to play or that that singer got to, you know, perform at the Red Rocks Theater. Okay, it was made as part of the CCC. Um, I got to go there a few years ago. I was visiting some friends in Denver and uh, my wife and I, we went on a little tour and stuff of the Red Rock Amphitheater and pretty cool stuff. Everything there is just carved out of the rocks and, uh, and it was built by people. So what is that? What, Mr. Brown, what are you talking about built by people? Obviously, everything's built by people. Okay, so what they decided to do, what the CCC was, was it, it allowed for people who were out of work, it gave them jobs. Building an amphitheater. You say, well, why, why do that? Because it's going to give people something to do. Okay, they're going to start building roads. Uh, we have more bridges and tunnels built for New York City at the time than was necessary. Now we probably need even more. Okay, but that's what they did in Florida right now. The governor of Florida he decided that down in southern Florida near Miami and Dade County, uh, this is exactly what they're going to do. Florida is kind of shut down right now, so they figure, well, with less people on the roads. Let's have people who are out of work, put them back to work, have them making money fixing the roads, okay? So these are just examples of that. The AAA, the Agricultural Adjustment Agency, farmers were overproducing, right? Remember that we talked about that in the beginning? Well, now they're going to pay farmers to stop growing food. An amazing thing. Stop growing food. We're, we're going to pay you. It's okay. Okay, so lots of good things come out of this, right? He's going to, you know, with the FDIC, that's an example of our, right, relief, recovery. That's reform. The money payments that were given, that's the relief. The CCC, the AAA, those are all recovery. So he's covering everything here. He's doing a great job. But there is something that does take place. And if you go to page 280, this is a... Uh, a little bit of a black eye, I guess you could say, on what happens here. So, we know how our government works. We have three branches of government. We've got the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches. Okay? Executive, legislative, and judicial branches. The legislative branch is Congress, right? They're going to do legislation. They're going to make laws. Okay? Executive, that's the president. And then the judges. The judges will always determine if something is constitutional or not. So here's the problem. As it says, Supreme Court was opposing many of the actions taken by Roosevelt. Roosevelt then has this idea. He's so frustrated. He's like, all right, I'm good. Congress is good. But the judicial branch keeps on getting in the way. So he wants to go. As, as, right, we have nine Supreme Court justices. He wanted to raise that number to 15. Now, as it stands, if you are a Supreme Court justice, you can hold, your, uh, hold that job for life. He wanted to say, well, hold on. If you turn 70, you could be removed. So he's trying to change things here. Now, who's the person who installs the judges? Who, uh, who, who gives them their jobs? The president. So if we were going to go from 9 to 15 who would be choosing who those extra six were going to be? The president. So now, one of the things that makes our government truly magnificent is our checks and balances. If we allowed this to happen, we lose checks and balance, don't we? Right? Because now we're going to be going from having all of the three branches working independently to now the president, the executive, would have a lot of say in what was happening with the judicial, being able to get six people in there. Because think about it, right? If uh, the president goes, gives a judge a job as the Supreme Court justice for life, is that person most more than likely going to side with what the president wants? Of course, right? That's just It just makes perfect sense. Um, more on this, if you want to read about it, on page 280 where it says Twilight of the New Deal. And then where it says uh, the Justice Reorganization Bill, okay? This obviously does not work out as we still do have nine, nine uh, judges. Um, my wife's cats are down here. Poppy, take it easy. They're running all over the place. Oh, my God. Anyway, um, okay, so <laughs> this, this failed, right? Because it was a threat of separation of powers. Here are just a couple of little cartoons, okay? 
Once again, here you go. You've got the New Deal. You've got Franklin Roosevelt there as the executive. He's good. Legislative is good. And then there's judicial. And he's like, come on, fall in. Uh, then you have this other one where they're under his thumb, right? Roosevelt, again, very, very, very powerful. Okay, so let's sum all this up. The ends of the Depression. So to sum it all up, the New Deal does help. Absolutely, it does help. Okay, but it's not a perfect solution. Okay, uh, private businesses, small businesses were not really going to be helped all that much by the aid that was given. Okay, so this is going to be kind of where he's going to fall short just a little bit. Um, what's really going to get the United States out of the Depression is World War II. The United States is going to make a tremendous amount of money, billions and billions and billions of dollars off of selling weapons to the Allies as part of his Lend and Lease program, the Lend and Lease program. Okay, so that's what it is that's going to save the country from the Depression. All right. Um, so I just got a little message here there. Uh, we're at 45 minutes and the most I could do is 60. Okay, cool. So here is your assignment now. Okay. You got the great depression DBQ. So if you just click on there, it's going to take you to the 2003 AP US history free response questions. Okay, fine. So let's look at what the question is. Now we're all we have to really worry about. All right is the dbq you don't have to worry about any of the other essays now there are 10 documents on here 10 documents you're only going to have to use four all right as because they had to change the way that the test is this year uh as i told you on uh, in the presentation on friday it is going to just be um one dbq that's all your ap test is and it's going to be for, um, for 45 minutes, a DBQ essay, all right? Uh, I'm going to try and put together a, a Google Meet where, because I, I saw obviously 16 people looked at the, at, listened to the podcast. Uh, so maybe you just hate the sound of my voice and you read it, I hope. Um, but I want to make sure that you all understand exactly what's happening as far as your, your AP uh, exam is going to go for U.S. history, okay? Um, <coughs> so... This is an old DBQ. There are 10 documents in here. I want you to go through the documents and I want you to choose the four that work best for you, okay? You only now have to do four documents instead of six, so that's nice. Uh, that's gonna be for your new test, so that's what we're going to do as well, all right? So if we look at the question here, it says, right, number one, analyze the responses of Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration to the problems of the Great Depression. How effective were these responses? How did they change the role of the federal government? Use knowledge of uh, use documents and your knowledge of the period of 1929 to 1941 to construct your essay. Okay, so this is it. This is all you have to do. It's a pretty easy essay, right? You have to analyze what Roosevelt's administration does, right? It's the New Deal. That's what his plan is. And then two things. How effective were they? And how did they change the role of the federal government? That's all. Okay, so if you start, you know, you look through some of these uh, documents, okay? Um, document B, okay? Uh, it, it really, there is a little bit about concern for uh, unemployment and things like that, what's, what's happening. If you look at document C, okay, it says, uh, it is evolution, not revolution, gentlemen. And what you, what you have here is basically him showing the New Deal with all those alphabet programs, okay, that were there. If I were to be writing this essay, this is an easy one to do, right? He's showing that, hey, this is just an evolution. This is, this is our government, right? The purpose of government to protect the people, so Thomas Jefferson said. He's saying, hey, look, our government, we have to grow. We have to get better. And so as we evolve all these things like the CCC, the FDIC, are all ways to do that, okay? So, uh, then, you, you know, you have a, a document from William Wood Garrison Jr. Uh, document E, another good one, a monthly check to you, right? I, I, again, this is all uh, another thing that he comes up with, and that is a social security plan, okay, for people who were 65 and older so that they could be taken care of, okay? All right, so this is your DBQ. Um, again, you, you know, you, you take your time. I just want you to write the very, very, very best essay that you can. Now, 
excuse me, go back to the presentation and click on the second link. The second link is the new rubric. Okay, so I just want to make sure that I go over this with you a little bit here. Okay, now, this new rubric, here's what it is. The thesis is still one point. The contextualization is still a point. You don't have to worry about that. Now, here you can see where it's highlighted in the green is where we have some changes, right? For evidence, right? Your use of the documents and whatever else you're going to speak about. So you get a point if you uh, use two documents, right? You get two points if you use two documents and they are going to be discussing your, you know, whatever. They're going to back up what your argument is. And you get three points, three points, if you use four documents. So please make sure you're going to use four documents. Okay, evidence beyond the documents. Outside information. It says, one point, uses at least one additional piece of the specific, see, there it is, specific historical evidence uh, beyond that found in the documents, relevant to an argument about the prompt. Then the highlighted green and one point, so you can get two. So you can get right here, if you use four documents, and two specific pieces of outside information, okay? Uh, that, that is going to be how you're going to get five points. Really not that hard. Guys, we are lucky in that this is what we've been focused on all year. Um, honestly, if they would have said, oh, we're just going to do short answer questions, I would have said, oh, damn. Uh, we hadn't really done all that much with those. We're lucky here, okay? This is a DVQ. You're all, you are all doing really, really well with this. I am not... I am. I feel very, very confident that you're all going to be able to do well. Okay, so for the two points for outside information, you have to have two specific pieces of information beyond the documents. Okay, that are going to talk about, uh, you know, basically what, um, what, what you're gonna. <laughs> Sorry, I've been talking for fifty minutes. Uh, you know, um. Two pieces that are going to support your thesis, okay? And then finally, the uh, analysis and reasoning, okay? How are you going to get points for that? Make sure you're stating what the purpose or point of view um, or, you know, uh, the intended audiences for the different documents. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. You are going to write this essay. Today is, it is Monday evening right now. Um, I'm going to give you until... The end of the day, Friday. That's right. Till the end of the day on Friday, uh, in order for you to to be able to. What am I saying? This is due the end of the day, Friday. Okay. Then I'm going to spend the weekend. I'm going to grade them and 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 so on. Okay. And then on Monday, I'm going to come back and going to give you a presentation about uh, how you did. Okay. Uh, I don't want you to feel stressed. I feel like this is a, a, a tremendous amount of time that you have to work on this uh, on your DBQ. So what are you going to do? You're going to do what you've been doing for most of you. Okay. Just type it up and submit it as a Google document in Google Classroom. Okay. Due by the end of the day on Friday. Um, I hope that you're all doing well. Uh, if you made it 54 minutes into to the end of this year, uh, great, great, great job because I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't even, I don't even know how I just went and spoke on and on for 54 minutes. But uh, I hope you're all doing well. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to, to hearing from you and reading some of your responses. Okay. Have a great night.